Welcome, it's Jeremy Allen Gould. I'm coming to you today to confirm between God and of man that in fact the rumors that you have all heard are true. I started this podcast because I freaking love music. I was privileged enough to book amazing artists and bands in the past, and I was lucky enough to stay in touch with many of them to this day. This is a place to hear their stories. Thank you so much for riding along on this journey, and I hope you enjoy what you hear. With that said, the rumors are definitely true. this latest episode. Today, I welcome the almighty Jonathan Ford. Jonathan, you know from the bands Roadside Monument, Pedro the Lion, Unwed Sailor, Mr. Bishop's Fist, Fellsway, and various other bands over the years. Um, An amazing conversation with Jonathan uh, regarding the Roadside Records and his fondness for the Pedro the Lion record, It's Hard to Find a Friend, as well as his current Records he's been putting out lately on Spartan Records. Um, We delve into his past and kind of where he began, and it's just an awesome opportunity to talk to somebody I've looked up to since I was a teenager, Um, and I know many of you have looked up to as well. So I hope you really enjoy this latest episode with Jonathan Ford. Jonathan Ford, buddy, what's up, man? Uh, Not too much. Just uh, uh, talking to you and doing some laundry. Nice. You, you still in Oklahoma? Yeah, Tulsa, Oklahoma. What do you got going on nowadays? Uh, well, uh, pretty much my life consists of uh, taking care of my cats and working on unwed sailor stuff. Uh, so that's what I've been doing. Um, I, uh, currently working on a new Elmwood Sailor album. Oh, nice. And um, getting ready for a touring uh, this spring. And, of course, uh, our new album, Meet the Charm, that whole uh, release cycle that just came out a couple of weeks ago, February yeah. 9th, I think. So, you know, uh, just doing all that stuff with the reviews and social media posts and all that kind of thing. So That's yeah, awesome. it's just I'm just swimming around in uh Unwed Sailor World. Nice. Very, very cool, man. Well, I love the new record, by the way. It's fantastic. I really, oh, really thanks. stoked on it. Well, I know we'll talk about it in a little bit, but 
So I wanted to go back a little bit and kind of talk. I, you and I met a couple, I don't know, quite a while ago, um, and I just was trying to think. I, I know I, I booked you guys with Appleseed Cast one, unwanted with Appleseed in Wichita, and then I wound up booking you with Na- your other side project, Native Lights, as well, um, which I thought, I loved loved that band as well. So I thanks. Any and I just kind of I've always looked up to you, and I think it's cool that. Um, you know, you've just been in about every band that I've loved. <laughs> so, so uh, it's it's really cool to like you know be able to uh, know you and and get to talk to you. You know. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I'm stoked. Uh, yeah, man, we go way back. So it's it's nice to do a podcast with someone that I've been friends with for a few years now. Yeah, M- many well, few years. Absolutely, absolutely. Awesome. So, Jonathan, let's go back a little bit and kind of tell me uh, what growing up was like for you, uh, kind of the influences, the bands, the records that kind of stood out to you and kind of what put you on this path uh, to music in your life. Well, uh, you know, earliest earliest start would be me as a as a little kid, uh, you know, uh, seven to 11, 12, something like that. uh, just listening to classical records at my house. Uh, my favorite thing to do was to read books and records at the same time. So I, I would sit, um, we had one of those like 70s, like huge record player furniture, eight track player kind of thing, uh, you know, yeah, uh, sitting in our living room. So I would just sit against that and read books and listen to classical records. Uh, and that was my favorite thing. So I, I, I think that that's kind of what planted the seed for me musically. Uh, and even later in Dunwood Sailor with the classical music influence. And that, that was my thing. Uh, and I, I loved music in, in the car. I, you know, I listened to classical music with my mom and, and we would talk about the things that, that we saw in our minds as we were listening to the music uh, and make up like little stories as we listen to the music. So again, I think that's a, an influence that later came into Unwed Sailor. So I, you know, I was into that and then, you know, as I started getting older you start listening to the radio more, uh, you start realizing there's a world outside of classical music, <laughs> which would be like pop radio for me. Sure. Uh, in the eighties and that, you know, I, that ended up being like my new obsession, you know, recording the Casey Kasem show on, on cassette, uh, every, whatever day that was Saturday or whatever (laughs) week that was. Um, you know, uh, staying up all night to see a particular video on MTV, you know, and that, that was the era of like, you know, uh, Journey and the Go Go's and um, Sticks, Foreigner, uh, yeah. you know Brian Adams. Love him. Um, yeah, I uh, I just heard him today on the radio. It was awesome. Uh, so so yeah, I mean that you know that became my my next obsession. Uh, just loved it. Uh, Belinda Carlisle's solo records were huge for me. Um, Men Without Hats. Mm. Was another one that I loved. Uh, the Def Leppard Hysteria record Love, was great huge, record. amazing record. Um, 
still huge for me. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it was interesting growing up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, being in this, you know, pr- pretty, I mean, it is a city, but it's not super cultured, mm-hmm. especially in the eighties. Uh, so my, my whole input was the radio. So, and then you start getting, uh, like metal, you know, like glam metal on the radio, mm. which kind of goes into Def Leppard a little bit. Uh, but so, you know, I was getting into those bands and those bands were kind of the only bands coming through Tulsa. So I would go see the, all those bands play, uh, you know, everyone from like winger to, uh, well, we did get Metallica. Oh, nice. Uh, Trickster. Um, Nelson played. I love all those bands. <laughs> yeah. After the rain is a great song. I know. Yeah, it's great. Um, so, you know, I was listening to a lot of that and going to see those bands. And then I started getting into more like heavy stuff like Metallica, uh, or Megadeth, uh, came through things like that. And around, at, around that same time, or actually before that, I, I, started discovering punk punk rock which was really hard to do here it it, it was not in your face this would have been mid 80s uh and i discovered punk rock through skateboarding which was also hard to, to to find here uh and i pretty much discovered skateboarding and bmx through going to my local grocery store and just seeing a a uh freestyling magazine mm-hmm. Or a Thrasher magazine. Yep. And, you know, being a young kid and seeing that while your parents are doing grocery shopping, I was like, wow, what, what is that? So I, you know, started picking up Thrashers and freestyle magazines. And then uh, one day down the street from me, I, I noticed that a bike shop opened. So my dad and I were driving by there one day, and I noticed there were some guys out there doing freestyle tricks on their bikes. So I got super excited. I was like, Dad, pull over. You know, you know, so I jumped out and I'm like watching him and just my life is just changing right there. I'm just seeing like this thing that's like different, way different than football or way different than any sports, you know, that I see on TV or at school. So I just became obsessed with with freestyle and BMX and then skateboarding. And then, so from there, you know, you start, uh, you start reading Thrasher and you start seeing these skate rock compilations, uh, you know, with, uh, JFA and drunk engines and black flag. So my mind starts getting open, opened up to that whole world. And then, uh, you know, I was kind of, I, I didn't live in the country, but at that time, this, the area of Tulsa I lived in was not rural, but it was getting out there. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get into like the city area much. But once I did, I started, you know, I would see like some guy with bands on. And I'd be like, oh my God, that guy has bands. You know, that's what I wear. That's what I see in Thrasher. So I'd go up and talk to him. And he'd be like, oh yeah, I'm into skateboarding too. So there we go. I met someone I can go skate with now in the city. <laughs> and uh, 
And so then, you know, we, we, or we would go to his house and he had like a lawn trip in his house and he'd be playing some band on his boom box. And I'd be like, who's this? And he's like, Oh, it's agent orange. So he'd make me a cassette tape. So that's how I started getting into punk. And then from there, uh, you know, I, I'd go to the mall and there'd be a, a Camelot music oh, yeah. or a music land. So I'm just looking through these tapes and I see a band, you know, a band called the Smiths, a band called New Order, a band called Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, a band called Circle Jerks. So I'm just like buying these cassettes and discovering, you know, the most insanely influential bands of all time. Oh, yeah. You know, in those genres by just like looking at the cover of a cassette and, um, and then coming home and putting the Smiths on and listening to it over and over and over and just not understanding Morrissey's voice. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's reprogramming your brain. Yeah. It's like, because he's not, you know, back then it's like, he wasn't necessarily this great uh, vocalist. Like what, mm-hmm. what in, in like the real world, what you would consider this like amazing vocalist. Yeah. So I remember asking my mom if, if she thought his voice sounded good. Cause I, I didn't understand that, you know, you don't have to be this trained vocalist to, to do what you do. And that's punk, you know, it's punk rock. Yeah. So I just, you know, I just got obsessed with the Smiths, the Sex Pistols, um, and uh, so then, you know, probably just about like every other kid who listened to that, that is your, that's like your door that opens into, oh, well, I could do a band too. So, uh, you know, that was pretty much right out of high school. I thought, okay, I, I want to play music. Like I've, I've obsessively listened to music since I was a little kid. Even the things I do like skateboarding or BMX is wrapped up in music. So I want to, I want to do this. I want to play music. So I bought an acoustic guitar and I would just sit in my room and try to learn how to play stuff, get a distort. And I had a distortion pedal with my acoustic. So that's, I would start doing feedback and things like that. Um, so that, that sort of opened up my whole brain uh, to like, you can make noise and it sounds good. And uh, so from there, uh, that started to bring me, uh, from punk, I started getting into hardcore and heavier music. Uh, pr- probably more heavier music, like Helmet and Clutch, uh, Crowbar, things like that. And uh, that led me into uh the miss mr bishop's fist era oh yes oh yes i was gonna say real quick it's funny you're saying all these records that kind of opened the door for you mr bishop's fist was one of the first bands that opened the door for me <laughs> like you know getting the demolition of the rec rex uh sampler and then the helpless amongst friends from tooth and nail like i remember vividly my friends on when we got those comps we were like you know every band we would eat up but I just I, I was drawn to Mr. Bishop's Fist because it was just so harsh and it, and it was like I loved how dirty it was and all that stuff. So it's definitely can relate. You know, that's kind of for me, you know, growing up in church and growing up in 
in music, uh, you know, like kind of Christian music, like being able to open, you know, a little bit wider, like, you know, punk rock or aggressive music or heavy music. So to me, you know, that was kind of a doorway for me. So that's really cool. Can you talk about Mr. Bishop Smith for a little bit? Let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, well, we, you know, uh, I had met uh, Tim Henderson, the drummer, uh, who he lived in Portland. And uh, one night uh, I was going to go to the show and there was a, a local radio DJ here in town that was going to the show. And I had I had met him and talked with him, kind of gotten to know him. And he was like, hey, uh, do you need a ride to the show? And I'm like, sure. And he's like, hey, I'm bringing this this guy I met named, named Tim Henderson. He's from Portland and he just moved down here. And I was like, okay, cool. So we, he comes and picks me up. I meet Tim. We go to the show. Super cool night. Um, you know, made a new friend, uh, said goodbye. And then uh, probably 45 minutes later, uh, I get a phone call. And it was from the radio DJ guy. And he said, hey, he's like, hey, man, uh, we just got in a really bad car wreck. Uh, and Tim had to get taken to the hospital. He's like, I'm okay. Uh, but I just wanted to let you know what happened. He's like, I'm here dealing with the accident and everything, but the ambulance took Tim to the hospital. And I'm like, dude, you know, this guy had, Tim had just moved here. Didn't know anybody finally met some friends. And then he's like in a hospital in some, in some strange city you know, all the way across the country. So I thought, dude, I'm going to like, I'm going to go up to the hospital, see Tim and make sure he's okay. So uh, my mom took me up there uh, to see Tim and, you know, he was okay. Uh, he was just shooken up and mm-hmm. got rattled around and they just wanted to like make sure, make sure okay. he make sure he was really okay. Um, so after that, uh, uh, Tim and I exchanged phone numbers and, like well hey man let's let's hang out when you get better so then we uh so we ended up starting to hang out a lot and we were really kindred spirits i mean we were both really into music he was uh he was super into uh the band the sundays so was i uh he was a big inya fan i love love inya too (laughs) yeah like he uh he and he uh uh, he was also he was really into uh, Leggetti, this classical composer, okay. who I had never heard before, and so he he was like showing me all these this new music, and uh, the Innocence Mission. I love that. Uh, he he introduced me to them, so we were just like loving it, hanging out, and I was showing him all these new bands that I listened to, and so he was also really into Helmet and Clutch. So we we were like <clears throat> on this mission. I went to Portland with him to visit his parents, and we were going to all these. And this was like, I think this was the day Siamese Dream was released. Wow! Because we were going to all these record stores, and every store was playing Siamese Dream, <laughs> and um, and we loved that too. And and uh, I, I know we went into some store, and uh, the. Uh, the record store employee recommended tool to us. 
you know, so we picked that up. So we were just discovering, discovering music together. And so, you know, at that point it's like, okay, well, the, the, the logical step is we should start a band. I mean, this, and he's like, Tim was like, you know, I, I, I played drums before a little bit so I could play drums. And, uh, we had a friend at the time named Mike Jamison who played guitar and, uh, and I was like, well, you know, I, I can, I've messed around on the bass, but I can kind of play bass. So we just started a band and uh, we, we would go to uh, this IHOP restaurant every night, well, almost every night and, and eat. And we would just talk about names, what we would call it and, and song titles. And then one day we just came up with Mr. Bishop's Fist. And... Um, so like, okay, let's do it. So we just went in my garage and started writing songs that influenced by bands like Helmet and Clutch and, and that yeah. whole thing. And, um, and I think, you know, as far as like lyrically and stuff at that time, you know, I, I had gone to a Christian school my whole life and was just pretty fed up with it at that point. Just, uh-huh. uh, um, the rules, uh, just getting thrown around in that world. Mm-hmm. So I was pissed, you know, as as a as a late teen, <laughs> you know, about it. So that's what I just I wrote my lyrics about. Yeah. You know, uh, was that religious system that I just had grown to hate, um, and and had this hold on me, you know, and it would take years to shake it off, Yeah, (laughs) you know? So that, so I just had that anger and hate in me with that. And then, so we had that, we got, wrote these songs, went in the studio. And, uh, at that point I, I had written the lyrics and actually Tim wrote some lyrics too. And we didn't know who was going to sing for the band. When, as we were recording the demo. Uh, and so Tim and I were like, well, let's just both try it. And whoever sounds the best will will do it. So Tim got up and blew out his voice in like 20 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and I got up and what what you hear on that demo is what came out of my mouth. That's amazing. Like that's the first time I had ever sang or screamed like that. And I, I really think it was all those years from first through twelfth grade of being in a, in that Christian school that just came out. I bet. And and it just worked. Were um, you guys stoked on it? Were you like, this is amazing? Or were you were you like, did was it did it exceed your what you thought it was gonna be when you recorded it? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, I think every every you know, every kid that records their first you know, records their first demo is stoked, you know, uh, like I, I, for me, it was like, man, I, uh, hearing my voice for the first time and it working, uh, my bass playing is like pretty horrible, but you know, a lot of like early hardcore bands, I, the bass playing is horrible. So, (laughs) um, so, so yeah, we loved it. I mean, it's what we wanted. 
Yeah. Uh, we, we felt like it, we, I mean, we honestly didn't know what we were doing. I mean, obviously if we were going in and we didn't even know who was going to sing, but, but I felt like it was very pure. Yeah. Like it was straight from our heart and our brains. Like we, it, it was very uh, immature and innocent. And I think that's why people connected to it. Yeah. Because I think a lot of hardcore at that time was very like, we sound like West Coast hardcore. Or we sound yeah. like, you know, we sound like Revelation Band or we sound like, uh, you know, East Coast hardcore. It was just chuggy. Like you knew what was coming next. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's what it was just different. Uh, in that scene at the time. And uh, we also, I forgot to mention, uh, as long with the helmet and clutch and stuff, we were, you know, we were really big into quicksand slip. Love, I love that record. You know, albums like that, that were completely redefining that whole genre. Yep. So that was a big influence, you know, for us. And uh, so, you know, we, we, we were doing Mr. Bishop's fist and then we met, this guy, Ricky Rogers. Hmm. He's he from War Warlord, right? Warlord Ricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that opened up a whole new world for, for Tim and I, because he would, he just walked in and was like, hey, have you ever heard Bart Market before? Hey, have you ever heard Today is the Day before? Uh, hey, have you ever heard Neurosis? Wow. Like throwing all that stuff in our lives. So that was like, once we started getting into all that, we were like, okay, Mr. Bishop's Fist just sounds prehistoric to us now. You know, I, after listening to t Today is the Day Willpower and Bart Market uh, gimmick, I was like, okay, this is like a whole other world. Yep. So, so we were hanging out with Ricky a lot, and we decided we would – not do Mr. Bishop's Fist anymore and start a band with Ricky and his friend Nathan. And that uh, that turned into, into a band called Katechumen. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so we we never re we recorded like garage demos of that. We never played a show. Oh, no, wait, we played one show at Cornerstone on the skate ramp. Nice. Um, and uh, that band is what is the next step is what led me to move to the West coast. I gotcha. So, uh, pretty much I, you know, at that point being like 20 or whatever, I Tulsa had nothing for me. Uh, there was no music scene here. I didn't see myself, uh, anyone appreciating the or let alone being able to play really any shows here. So I thought, well, the place to go would be, uh, we all wanted to go to Portland. And, you know, this was, uh, this was grunge era too. Uh, little, a little past grunge era. So the, you know, Pacific Northwest was just vibrant at oh, that yeah. time. So we, uh, uh, we all headed up. Uh, headed up there to Portland and uh, but Katechman didn't end up working out because the singer 
ended up getting put in jail. Oh God. So he couldn't move out with us. So at that point I I'm in Portland and I don't have a band anymore. So I'm just, you know, loving Portland, loving all these like amazing record stores and living in that environment. Yeah. But I, I wanted to play music. So, uh, I had met uh, Andrew Rizek, who played guitar in the band Focus. Focus, yeah. And I got in touch with him. And what's funny is remembering all this, like there were no cell phones. So I cannot remember how I contacted <laughs> these people. Like, how did I get a hold of Andrew in Long Beach when I was in Portland? Random. It's, I don't know if I wrote a letter to him or what, <laughs> you know, but like, um, but anyway, I, 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 got a hold of Andrew and I said, Hey, I'm living up in Portland, but I, I you know, I'm, I can't really find what to do here. Can I come down there? So I went to Long Beach and hung out with, with uh, Andrew and lived at his house. And uh, so, yeah, we would just hang out and I just got into that whole scene there, like the Long Beach hardcore scene and, um, I even I even got to like jam with some with some guys there like me and Andrew and some other guys kind of you know started to play music a little bit but mm-hmm. for one time I think at someone's house you know uh and it was great you know I I've always loved Andrew and he's always been such an influential guy to me uh yeah. musically he he would send me mixtapes uh and introduce me to so many new bands um uh, but again, it just, it, you know, whatever, it just didn't feel right there. Yeah. Like I couldn't really find it. So I went back to Portland and then, uh, I had met Matt Johnson, uh, at that time from the band Blenderhead. Yeah. And so again, I don't know if I wrote Matt a letter or what I did, but I asked if I could come up to Seattle and Matt was like, sure, man, Come up. Uh, we all live in a house together. It was called the House of Funk. Yeah. He's like, you can just sleep on the couch and, you know, it'll be great. So I got up to, to Seattle and that's when everything clicked yeah. and everything started. Uh, I just started meeting everybody, all these musicians. That, the, the scene was just insanely vibrant. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I was living there, and then I heard about this band, Roadside Monument, that was recording their first album up at Avast, which is a studio in Seattle. And I'm like, cool, yeah, it, I, I want to go check them out, because, you know, all those dudes were friends with all the House of Funk guys, you know, Damian Gerardo and Dave Bazan mm-hmm. and Matt Johnson and everybody. It was like... And the House of Funk was kind of ground zero for everybody. Yeah. For everyone would, everybody would like Coolidge, uh, which it. was Damien Gerardo yeah. and uh, so David good. Bazan's band, uh, and Eben Haas from Blenderhead. They they would practice there at House of Funk. So I, you know, I would wake up on the couch to them practicing. So cool. So yeah, it was. I mean, it was just so vibrant. So uh, I went down to to Avast. And just introduce myself to Roadside Monument, which, uh, um, which is where I met Doug Lorig, yeah, uh, from Roadside. 
And, you know, they were tracking and I went in and uh, sat down on the couch with him. I'd never even met him before and just made myself at home pretty much. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember I, I was talking to them and I believe it was Doug said something to me like, Hey, like our bass player is quitting. W would you be into playing bass for us? I'm like, yeah, I'm in. And I, I had, I mean, I hadn't really played bass. Like I, I, I had a little bit in Mr. Yeah. Bishop's fist, but it, you know, what it was very like primitive. So around that time I decided, uh, I started a band called Fells Way with uh with Josh Golden, who would end up becoming a, a bass player in Pedro the Lion. Okay. Uh Matt Johnson from Roadside Monument on drums, Eben Haas from Coolidge and Blenderhead on guitar, and me on bass, and me singing. And so we wrote some songs that were very to me they were a cross between like Still Life, yeah, Drive Like Jehu. Yeah. Like they were just this noisy kind of emo, uh, the band Current. Yeah. They were a big influence on me. So we wrote a few songs, went in and recorded a, a demo, and it ended up sounding great. And so we, we played three shows. Um, and the last show we played was at the House of Funk, and it was – Roadside Monuments last show with uh with their bass player Fellsway and Jeremy Enoch solo. Oh my god. And there might have been one other band, I can't remember. But this is like happening in the li living room of the house I'm living in. <laughs> well, what were you thinking? Was oh, like Jeremy Enoch was he wasn't big then obviously, but what were you like, "Oh my god, this this whole thing's insane." Yeah, I mean, it was everything that I had wanted and I was looking for, and, like, and more. And, you know, the, the house was packed full of people seeing the show. Um, the Fellsway show, I ended, up, I ended up swinging my bass around and hitting Josh Golden in the head. <laughs> and I had blood, he had blood running down his face on our last song. He, they had to take me to the hospital to get stitches. Oh, my gosh. Uh so it was wild, dude. It was a oh. wild show. And uh, so then that's – but that's how I got into Roadside Monument. So why didn't Fellsway continue? I know, didn't you guys put a song out on like a Tooth & Nail comp or um, – Yeah, I'm Your Biggest Fan. Yeah, that's right. Volume 1 or something. Yeah. Uh, well, I think because I had gotten into Roadside, I was felt. playing bass for them, and they were a signed band. Yeah. And, you know, there was, you know, there was the goal of touring. Yeah. Uh, and you had Doug as like a main songwriter in there, in there too. I, 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 at that time in my life, I wasn't really a songwriter. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at least I didn't think I was, I hadn't tapped that potential. So, so I just dove into roadside and, uh, we started. We were writing as a as a four piece at that point. Mike Dente was still in the band, and um, so we started playing shows. And we were mostly playing beside this brief hexagonal and yeah. my life is green seven inch. 
and then, but we had written uh, a couple of new songs that ended up on the Polar Roadside Monument split. Yeah. And so uh, we had started playing, and Mike Dente and I didn't really get along that well. And I think it was just for mostly me, probably, because <laughs> at that time in my life, like I was so driven and so focused. I didn't want anything to hold me back yeah. from living this dream of being in a band that toured and recorded. And Mike was in a position during that time where he couldn't really tour that much or, and I think he was even kind of more wanted to go a different musical direction too. I gotcha. And so we, and that all came to a head when we were, uh, uh, we had done a show at the Hiawatha House. Uh, we were doing a show at the Hiawatha House, which is a communal house we all lived in, uh, in the U District in Seattle. And um, we held shows in our basement. It was great. We, like, we had uh, Mineral played. Wow. Uh, Kerosene 454. Um, uh, Soul Junk. Murder City Devils played our living room crazy uh yeah it was it was great but anyway so we're playing and we had made a set list and uh mike wanted to play a couple of his songs and so we had included them in the set list but we had to cut our set short and we couldn't play mike's songs so keep in mind uh sub pop had come out to see us at this show too, wow in our basement and we knew that so we were a little nervous. And so at the end of the set, um, we finished and we had to cut Mike's songs. And he got really pissed and started just freaking out while we were playing, swinging his guitar around, like <laughs> threw his guitar across the basement and just stormed out. Wow. And that was the end of the show. So... We never heard from Sub Pop after that. Oh gosh! But uh, but Mike quit. Um, so that's how we became the B Doug and Matt three piece. Yeah. And from there, that's when we started writing Eight Hours Away from Being a Man. Let's talk about and that record. Going that whole world. Yeah, let's talk about the record. Tell me, kind of. I mean, when you were writing it, was it something? I mean, I guess it's kind of the question I asked. Look, what were you feeling when you when you were writing? Were you like, "This is insane. This is amazing." Were you just like, or are you just putting putting it down on what you were feeling? It was putting down what we were feeling. I mean, again, we didn't really know exactly what we were doing. Like when I wrote the bass, the sperm ridden burden. If you really listen to that opening bass chord of that song it makes no sense at all it's mm. not even musical like if like play that on a bass without distortion and it, it sounds like a guy in guitar center picking up a bass for the first time and like <laughs> hitting strings it makes no sense so me as a songwriter at that point i didn't really know what i was doing but i just kind of went with my heart and my gut and went with this inspiration and drive of being a songwriter and being in a band. Yeah. And that's, that's what you hear on that record. 
Um, and just being extremely lucky that I found Matt Johnson and Doug Warwick because yeah. we had this chemistry together. Absolutely. That some people never find. And I just found and in my first real band that I went on tour with and went into a real recording studio with. So we just had a chemistry and a magic together. And once we started writing songs, it just, you know, we were just writing away in our basement. And then, uh, you know, we got booked at Robert Lang Studios in Seattle with Bob Weston, mm. you know, from Schlack and Volcano Sons, yeah. and who was a, just a hero of ours. And even, and even then, I'm just pinching myself. I'm just like, okay, this is all really working out. And, uh, you know, even Robert Lang, you know, it was just a legendary studio. Yeah. It's like Nirvana, Foo Fighters. Nuts. And uh, so we recorded eight hours away from being a man and literally what felt like eight hours. It, <laughs> I, we, we were not in the studio long. Uh, I, I would have to check with Doug, but I feel like we, man, we might have recorded and mixed that thing in like three days or something. It was not very long. Yeah. And we tracked live, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that was my first experience of being in a real studio and recording a record um, with Bob Weston. <laughs> it was just insane. That's awesome. When you heard the record when, when it was done, what did you think? Again, I, I, I loved it and I was proud of it. Uh, and again, it was another situation where we knew it was something really different. Like it didn't sound like anything else that was going on at that time. Uh, and I think that, you know, a lot of that was our, our influences, like our together. Like Matt was super into, um, you know, like Neil Peart or Rush. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then Doug loved Led Zeppelin. Uh, and uh, we all love Slint. Yeah. You know, I was really into this Southern California emo band called Evergreen. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Drive Like Jehu. Uh, so we had all these. It's like our influences weren't all in the emo world. Like we we loved other things. Sure. Um so I think all that got thrown in the pot and stirred up. And that was eight hours. And it's also, it's interesting to me looking back that, and just seeing how minimal that record is. And that, that wasn't like planned. Like we didn't think, oh, we're going to make this minimal yeah. and dark and mysterious. It just happened. So I, I think that's, you know, a, a lifelong lesson, musical lesson for me has been to just let go yeah. and, and allow. And that's what we did on that record. We just let go and allowed whatever to channel through us to make this record. And just to be ourselves, not try to be anybody else in the music that we were creating. Yeah. What did, um, what did the label think when you, when they, when you gave it to them? I don't really know. Uh, I, 
I would think if Brandon didn't like it, he probably wouldn't tell us uh, <laughs> just because that would have been like a big, you know, wet towel over our, you know, drive to do anything. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he probably thought, okay, uh, this is definitely not commercial. It's definitely not, you know, a pop punk band, yeah. <laughs> you know, or yeah. it's definitely not beside this brief hexagonal. It's not my life is green seven inch. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it was definitely in a whole other genre, uh, very underground emo genre. And, you know, I mean, I, as far as I know, that record did horribly at the time. I, I, I think the, the tooth and nail crowd just did not really get it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, for us, like our, well, we did some regional touring, uh, playing shows. We, we would play shows at the Velvet Elvis in Seattle. Yeah. Which was the awesome all ages show, uh, or club, you know, lungfish would play there. Uh, this amazing local Seattle band called uh, bare minimum played there. I think sunny day real estate might've played there. Um, but, you know, it, it was amazing underground venue for all those kind of bands. So we would play there. Um, and then in Portland, we would, you know, play some punk clubs down there. And uh, we did a couple tours by ourselves, And then we did a tour. Our first kind of national tour was with Stavesacre. And a lot of those shows were churches. Wow. And so we would go in there. And it would just be like, what are we doing here? Like, <laughs> it just made no sense because the crowd did not get at all what we were doing. We didn't want to be playing those places. Um, you know, we had just recorded a record with Bob Weston. Yeah. Like, we want to be playing the Fireside Bowl in Chicago, you know? Yep. Uh, so, uh, but we love Stavesacre. Great guys. You know that that was that was a great oppor- opportunity touring with them, and we made great friendships that we still have to this day with Stavesacre. It's great. Um, so love those guys to death, and their show at Furnace Fest a couple years ago oh, yeah. was so good. Like I, after it was over, I was so sad because I thought this band still needs to be playing. Oh yeah. Like they were so good. It just brought back so many memories watching them play. And I I, I think out of the entire festival, that was like the show where I thought, I just, I missed them after that last note. They That's hit. awesome. <laughs> I was like, I just want them to keep playing. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, so after that tour, we decided, okay, we don't want to play churches. So we just started booking our own tours, which was a whole other thing that we had no idea what we were doing and so doug uh would just start researching clubs throughout the country and send our cd mail our cd to them and then asking if we could play and then he would go to the tooth and nail offices and go in the back room and use their long distance (laughs) to book all our tours so Tooth and Nail was getting charged the long distance bill. <laughs> but what was wild about it is Doug 
we would try to book these shows and the clubs would ask that see in the nineties, like in that whole scene, it was whatever, like, label you were on was a huge deal yeah absolutely that it was like your label was really important so we would say tooth and nail and they wouldn't give us the show wow because of the the christian thing and that we like for us being on tooth and nail was brandon was our friend he offered to put out our records and he would put us in the studio with bob weston so yeah, why that this is awesome. Yeah. So we but we got thrown we got the Christian identity thrown on us. Of course. So it was really hard for us to book tours. So at that time Tooth and Nail was distributed through Caroline Records, which was a well-respected yeah. distribution and record label at that time. So Doug would start telling the clubs that we were on Caroline Records, <laughs> and and we would get the shows. So we that's we just started doing touring, uh, going out you know all the way to New York, Boston, Chicago, Athens, Georgia, and still no one was at our shows. I mean it was brutal. I bet it and, was. You know, you know at that time if you're you know you're looking at the mid '90s, so a cheap. To get a cheap van, you were looking at buying something from the 70s. Yeah. So we were touring in like 1970s vans at that time with an 8-track player. <laughs> you know, I mean, and like we broke down constantly. And uh, talk about memories. Uh, you know, just our van, at one point our van almost blowing up on the side of the highway, uh, sleeping in truck stops trying to get our van fixed uh just our you know our radiator just blowing up in the middle of the desert like shooting shit all over our windshield that's nuts. while we're listening while we're listening to scene you know <laughs> in the, on the stereo you know <laughs> um yeah but but again that was like you know at that time i on those tours i would bring Henry Rollins get in the van with me. Oh, nice. That was my Bible. Like, that was like, okay, this is what I, I'm basing my touring attitude and experience on. Like, I'm going to work my ass off. I'm going to take every punch and get back up and keep going. And I think to this day, I still carry that with me in, in my music career or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, is that attitude. So we, you know, we were just living the DIY punk band in the van life. And it was beautiful. That's awesome. You know, it, it was scary, sad, it was lonely. But I, I would never, I w you know, I would never change anything. Yeah, uh, you, were getting, you were getting to do what you wanted to do, you know? Oh, it, the freedom, the freedom I felt is, I mean, something that those early tours and feeling that freedom is something that's like, I mean, I don't, I haven't been able to tap that since, wow. <laughs> you know, just that, yeah. what a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, realizing your dream, even though you're sleeping in a truck stop and your van is blue <laughs> up, you know, <laughs> reading, get in the van, like next to a yeah. trucker, you know, it's just yep. like, it's beautiful. Yeah. That's awesome. It's very cool. So 
how long after that did you start to write um, I Am the Day of Current Taste? Like what – I mean you obviously toured that time, so that was probably a year or so. But when did you start you know, writing that record and kind of talk about that record a little bit? Well, it seems it seems like it was after the touring. You know, you kind of as a band, you start thinking, okay, we've been out on tour. Um, now we write a new record. So, so yeah, we just started writing Current Taste, and you know, at that point, we had this whole other slew of in- influences that w- that we were mixing in. Like Don Caballero was huge for us yeah. at that time. Chavez was another big one. Yeah. So it's like we got even more mathy uh, and more distorted. And I think another thing too, the reason the music got even got more unhinged, I think probably came from us going through all those experiences a feeling like no one gave a shit about us. Yeah. So it's just there. I think there's some kind of, there's some anger in I am the day of current taste. And I also think we, there was an aspect of it too, that feeling so like we're alone and on our own that we kind of like almost didn't give a shit too. Yeah. Which is how you get those song titles like cops are my best customers you know, uh, car versus semi, semi wins every time. Like there was kind of a humor in it too. Like we almost like we had to laugh at it. Like just, you had to laugh on seeing your van almost blow up in the snowstorm, you know, and sleeping in the truck stop. So, so yeah, we, so we went in back into Robert Lang to record. I am the day of current taste. This time with Jay Robbins from Jobbox. Love, love Jay Robbins. And so Matt was super stoked on that because he's a huge Jobbox fan. And we all were, but Matt was giddy about it. <laughs> and there was a, the difference between Eight Hours and I Am The Day was eight, uh, I Am The Day, we actually had some pre-production stuff. Like Jay flew out to Seattle and came out to our rehearsals and sat there with a notepad and listened to our songs as we played them which i thought was i was like wow like he's like a producer you know it was like <laughs> it's a real like producer <laughs> then that the next big thing man you know so when we went in the studio with jay he he got really involved in doug's vocals like he would make doug do stretches before he sang he would suggest vocal harmonies. So he was really focused on Doug's vocals. And uh, yeah, it was cool to have someone we respected so much in there really contributing to the sound in the band. Absolutely. While with Bob Weston, he kind of had the Steve Albini approach uh, of hands off. Mm-hmm. And a funny story about Bob is we, you know, obviously he knew how much we looked up to him while we were in there. Uh, and so there was, there was one, I had tracked something, a, a part or a bass part or something. And I remember Bob was at the, at the, the board and I'm looking kind of at the back of his head, you know, standing behind him. 
And I said, Bob, what do, what do you think of that? And it just got quiet. And he never even turned around and looked at me. He just, I just hear this. You didn't hire a fucking cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> and me, me, Matt and Doug are like, oh my God. But you know, Bob was like smiling. That's hysterical. He, that. he, uh, he, uh, yeah, man, he, he, uh, he was just playing on the fact that we were so like still about it and, ner- and nervous. Uh, was- but yeah, but the thing, the great thing about Bob too, is like, we would go, we would play in Chicago. We would show up at the, we, we played the lounge acts and Bob would let us stay with him at his house. It's awesome. So there, there was never anything malicious or he, he wasn't being an asshole. Mm-hmm. He was just being funny and That's sarcastic. Awesome. Was he? Was he? Uh, was he and J. Rock? How how do you think they felt about the band? Like, were they both stoked on it? Or, I mean, I feel like for Bob, he probably, again, you know, we didn't hire a fucking cheerleader. Yeah. So he wasn't giving us a lot of like, he wasn't cheerleading, saying, "Oh, you guys sound awesome," or that part is great, or whatever. Um. So I think he was just there to do his job, but he did, uh, he did play trumpet on the record mm-hmm. yeah. on Iowa backroads. And, um, and I remember there was one comment he made, I can't remember what song it was, but he said something like, like that. He said, Oh, that's your Rodan song. The band Rodan. Yeah. He compared us to Rodan. Wow. But that's really all the uh, the the feedback we got from Bob. But Jay was like, you know, Jay was like more in the trenches, yeah, with us. Um, but yeah, he he seemed to be, uh, you know, stoked and enjoying himself, you know, as he was recording the record. That's awesome. But I think too, with "I Am the Day of Current Taste," you know, once once we had that recorded. And Brandon heard it. I remember he he heard I the song I am the day of current taste. And you know, it kicks in and it kind of has this like this verse and then it goes into a chorus. Yeah. It kind of has this like normal song structure. And I remember Brandon like his eyes getting big, like, whoa, like roadside, they wrote a pop song. <laughs> and then it just goes into like a six minute you know, like math rock thing. Um, and another funny story about I am the day is there was some kid that was in Seattle visiting and somehow he got a hold of us and asked if he could come to the studio while we were recording. And, you know, we're like, sure, come on up. (laughs) So he came up there and I remember we played some of I am the day of current taste for him as we were recording it. And he just kind of like didn't didn't like it. Oh wow! Because it was so different than eight hours away. And we started running into that. Uh, um, Tim Owen from Jade Tree was interested in signing Roadside Monument to Jade Tree. Wow! And he heard "I Am the Day of Current Taste" and decided not to. Interesting, because he wanted another eight hours away from being a man 
Mm. So again, we did it. You know, we we put out this record that was on our end, straight from the heart, pure, exactly who we are. That didn't sound like anybody else. Yeah. But nobody really got it. Yeah. So, you know, uh, but the, the interesting thing about Roadside is up towards the end there, I remember we started getting people coming out to our shows. Uh, like, I remember we played in Columbus, Ohio, and we had a packed out show wow. at this club in Columbus, and we were like, what is going on? Like, so it seemed like maybe people were starting to get it a little bit and follow us. And that was right around the time uh, that we broke up. I got you. Um, Was was it just you all kind of were like, were you burnt out? Was it just, we don't have to get too far into it, but was it just kind of like it's run its course? Uh, For me, it was, I, you know, I was friends with Dave Bazan and I was hearing his new band Pedro the Lion mm-hmm. and they were like my favorite band up there like I loved Pedro the Lion so much and then I got asked to play bass in Pedro the Lion ah. so I had to make a choice at that time what I wanted to do and so I chose Pedro the Lion okay and that was right when he was recording it's hard to find a friend it was it was right before it's hard to find a friend. I believe he was writing it and then he had asked me to play bass on it. So it was that and that was just Dave and I uh at his house. Wow. Uh he had a studio in his house. And at that time he was literally sleeping in his closet under and he had like um uh that was back when he wore white shirts all the time. Yeah. And he just had a clothes hanger full of white shirts, like hanging up in a closet. And he just slept under those shirts in the closet. <laughs> and then we and we literally tracked the record like in his room. What was what was that like recording that record? Uh, that's a phenomenal record. Uh, it was way different because it was it was the first time I'd ever experienced like recording in a home. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind, this is before Pro Tools and recording on a computer. This was all we were recording on tape with a mixing board in the house. Mm-hmm. So um, it was very much like a work day. And I think that's what Dave wanted it to be like. Yeah. Back then, I felt like he wanted Pedro the Lion, he wanted Pedro the Lion to be his job. So me being in the band it was going to be my job. So I would wake up on whatever days we were going to be recording at his house. I would wake up, get my base, go to the bus stop, get on the bus, take the bus out to Dave's house. And this would be like 7 a.m. Like he, he wanted to start in the morning. So I'd get there and we'd go get, you know, some hot chocolate and coffee and then just start recording. Wow. And it, it was very, you know, very intimate. It was just me and Dave in his house. Uh, and I, I think we were both still learning. Uh, you know, at that point, I, 
as far as I know, David never recorded a record before himself, mm -hmm. you know, like tracking a record as an engineer. Yeah. So, and he was doing that because it was just him and I in the, in the, in the house doing it. And it was, it was just super peaceful, man. That's it cool. Was, I mean, just imagine getting up every morning, taking the bus to this house. It's just you and Dave, and you're just sitting in there recording these songs on a tape machine. Like, it, it's very much how the record sounds. Yeah, I would agree with that's that. What, that's what it felt like. And if you, you know, you look at the original, the artwork of, uh, of that room with the drum set. Mm -hmm. That is the original cover, isn't it? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, yeah. That's that's the room that we we tracked in. Wow. Yeah, man, it was beautiful. Uh, it was it was a whole world away from roadside. Yeah. Which was you know current taste was just customized best customers like this crazy distortion math rock, throwing my bass into the amp, screaming you know like to this um, minimal peaceful rec home record. Yeah. <laughs> you know absolutely what'd you think of when you when the ra that record was finished what i mean that's a phenomenal record like i said it's just how did you i mean it's it's cool because you like you're saying you went from roadside this chaotic you know bangers and heavy heaviness and then it's just this beautiful i wouldn't say peaceful record but it, you know in comparison it's definitely a, a lot more of a peaceful record but what was your thoughts on that record i loved it i, I was already a huge Dave Bazan fan. I thought and still think he's one of the best songwriters of our generation. Absolutely. I mean, he's incredible. And to be able to sit there with him and see him create and record those songs was just, I mean, it's like going to school. You know, it's yeah. like you're learning, watching this guy do his beautiful, unique thing. So, yeah, I mean, I heard it and I was just stoked, man. I was like, dude, I'm on a Pedro the Lion record. Yeah. Like these songs, I mean, I, re I played bass on that record. And then I would even after playing bass, I would sit and hear that record and cry. Wow. Like just from Dave's songs, you know, cause he, yeah, he's incredible. So yeah. it, it was an incredible experience that I'm so thankful for. I bet. Just, wow. I mean, talk about being at the right place at the right time, you know? Yeah. Did you got, Did you tour? How long were you in, Pedro? And did you tour with it? Or how, how did that go? Yeah, we. I, I did the, I believe it was the first tour Dave ever did in Pedro. And we toured in a Datsun hatchback. Wow. And it was a three-piece, bass, guitar, drums, all the equipment in the Dotson hatchback. And we toured down the West Coast. And the car, it was a stick. Uh, a, uh, you know, the car was a stick. Yeah. I forgot the term for that. Um, manual transmission. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes the car wouldn't start. So we'd have to push the car and pop the clutch to start the car. Huh. So it would be, we'd be at a club and it'd be the end of the night. 
you know, there'd be people outside. We'd load everything I can up. see this happening. I'm just imagining it. <laughs> yeah, dude, the car wouldn't start. So me and the drummer had to get out, push the car while Dave's in the <laughs> popping the clutch, and then we'd have to run and jump in. Just <laughs> There we go, you know. Um, but, man, that, that tour was and is one of my most favorite tours I ever did. That's awesome. Because, again, it felt like that record. Like it was minimal. Even in the vehicle we were in, it was minimal. You know, it's like we have, like, the fact that we have a stick shift. The <laughs> fact that we have to, like, push our car to start it. Everything was so minimal and innocent. Yeah. And and it was in California, going down the West Coast. Just, it was so, it was in the springtime. So it's starting to get warmer. I remember that Bedhead was on tour at that time. Wow. And we were following them. Like we, they would play the same place we did the night before. And Dave and I were huge Bedhead fans. Yeah. And we would just talk about it in the car. Like, oh my God, we want to see Bedhead so bad. And that, that was when the Tortoise TNT album came out. Mm-hmm. So we were listening to that a lot in the car. I remember that. I remember we listened to Sinead O'Connor. I do not have what I haven't got a lot in the car. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it was just like this road trip with a buddy and just playing the It's Hard to Find a Friend songs every night. I can't imagine. Yeah, to not a lot of people. Yeah, I was going to say Pedro had had not been discovered at that point. So it mm -hmm. was, you know, we weren't playing these packed rooms. Was it you guys there, just by yourselves or were you with another band or? We were with a band called Mars Accelerator. Okay. Uh, they were a Seattle band at that time. Uh, really, I would say proud, kind of built a spill. Mm. Um, and they were great. Super cool. So, yeah, man, it, I mean, it was... Um, I remember we stopped uh, some, on some coastal town where Dave had lived at one time and met with his parents. And they ate lunch with his parents, and it was just so laid back and peaceful. And that's awesome. Uh, yeah, again, one of one of my most favorite tours I've ever done. Yeah, I can tell in your in the way you're talking about it. It's you know I, I can tell you cherish it and. You know, I, that's really a cool opportunity for you. And, you know, it's a, a really monumental record for, for Dave and you yourself. You know, it's just a phenomenal record, you know, through and through. I'm actually stoked. Out. He's coming in a couple months to do – he's doing that record in um, Control, I believe, front to back. Yeah, so, dude, that's so rad. Yeah, I I'm love stoked. His, I love his band right now. Yeah, I don't like, – I saw him at Furnace Fest last year. Was yeah, because you got we hung out and I remember yeah. he played. They were phenomenal. And that's this. I believe that. Well, maybe that's not the same ba band on his current record. Oh, is it? Uh, I'm not sure. I know it's the same guitar player. Not sure about the drummer. But uh, but I love I love this direction of Pedro the Lion right now. Like I, that last record is so minimal. Yeah. And it's even more personal and introspective on dave's part it's like you're sitting down and he's like it's like you're sitting down having a conversation with him about his childhood 
love that. Like it, it's incredible. It's such a great. It's one of my favorite Pedro the Lion records. It's great. It's phenomenal. He's he's prolific for sure. Oh, dude, he's like I said, he's one of the greats of our generation. Absolutely, absolutely. Sweet. So. I don't want to rush through it, but I do want to get on. Uh, I know you have an extensive Unwed Sailor catalog, and so I kind of wanted to, to hit on the latest two records, Truth and Consequences um, and Mute the Charm, like you said, just came out recently. So maybe kind of give me your thoughts on those records, and um, and then we can talk about what's coming up uh, for, for Unwed as well. And, um, yeah, so we'll go from there. Okay. Uh yeah, truth or consequences. Um, that that was an interesting record. It was recorded. They're they're all coming out so fast lately that it's Unwed Sailor's been a a, a roller coaster ride since 2019 because I've been putting out a record every year. Yeah, it seems like it. So sometimes they get jumbled up in my mind. And I can't remember where I recorded one and where I mixed one. <laughs> but but uh, Truth or Consequences came from songs that Matt Putman, who uh, is the studio drummer yeah. for Elmwood Sailor, that we had recorded at his house. Uh, and then I had also worked on Truth or Consequences in Bloomington, Indiana, um, with uh, Mike Adams. Okay, Mike yeah, Adams yeah. At yeah. his honest weight. Yeah, he's great. Um, yeah, uh, I had worked on it with him, and I believe I also worked on it in Birmingham, Alabama, at the Comvest Studio. And yeah, it's a uh, you know, it, these past few years with Unwed Sailor, especially with, with Look Alive, Truth or Consequences, and Meet the Charm, I feel like Unwed Sailor is just creating these new worlds that it's living in. Like, the with Truth or Consequences, I really started going for tracking multiple bases on top of mm. each other. And I did that a little bit on Look Alive, too. But with truth, I is when I really figured out I could do it, and I really liked how it sounded, and it was making a lot of sense for me. So I feel like that's a record where I I discovered a new element of Unwed Sailor that I feel like was always going to be there now. Yeah. And another first on that record is the song Voodoo Roo, mm -hmm. which I wrote about one of my cats. And that's the first Unwed Sailor song that I played every instrument on. Wow. Which was something I always wanted to do, but I didn't know if I could do it. So I just went for it, and it, it works. It's amazing. And what I love about it, too, is that it actually f sounds like Voodoo Roo, my cat. Because <laughs> she's kind of... She's beautiful, uh, tortoiseshell cat, but she's kind of clumsy. Like she, if she ever falls, she can't fall on her feet, mm. like every other cat in the world does. Yeah, like she'll land on her side. <laughs> and I love the way that that song kind of wobbles around in a way. Yeah, and I think that's because I played every instrument. 
It's pretty cool. And it gives it this kind of like archaic, primitive, wobble feel. Um, so, so that's kind of a highlight of that record to me. Uh, I really love Blitz. Uh, I feel like that's the closest on what Sailor's ever come to like a Cure song. Wow. Well, yeah, I can. Like, Jared Bowser and I were like, this is totally sounds like the Cure. Like we we said the same thing like, when we when that record came out. We're like, he's totally listening to the Cure. <laughs> well, see, I wasn't though. That, <laughs> see, that's the thing. It's like all these songs that happen. I'm I don't sit down and think the Cure. Yeah. You know, I I don't think those things because the second that happens, it's not going to work. Mm. So I this is it's, you literally just channel all those influences throughout your life that you've yeah. heard and you let go and you just let those things, let them come through how they want. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I love truth, man. Uh, I, I love the album cover. Absolutely. Uh, I, I feel like that really brought the record together. Um, yeah. And you get to work with Spartan too. Je, uh, John at Spartan. He's, he's incredible. Yes. That's another, yeah, that's another highlight of, truth or consequences was that was the first record that came out on spartan records who i've been i've been working with it feels like for years yeah it does but it's only been like maybe two (laughs) it's really wild like how that is like you know because john and i we've just become really close um as friends too so so yeah that's the, the my first record was spartan um spartan records and I'm trying to remember the other songs on Truth or Consequences. Oh, uh, Paladora. Mm. Uh, I really like that song. That Mike Adams uh, plays guitar on that song. Oh, okay. Um, and piano as well. Uh, and that was another song where I, I was diving into the multi-bass tracks. Um. But yeah, and and again, you know, making a record with Matt Putman and Dave Swatzel, who plays guitar, and I'm with Sailor, like we have a chemistry as well. Um, you know, like I said, back with me, Doug, and Matt had a chemistry. For I'm with Sailor, Dave, Matt, and I have a chemistry that just works really well as far as putting these songs together. Dave's in Birmingham, right? Yep. He lives yeah, in okay, yeah, I met him through Jake Brown. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Jake's a great friend of ours. Yeah, Jake's great. That's awesome. So let's talk about Mute the Charm for a little bit since that one just came out. Um, I know we talked earlier, you're on to the next already, but uh, kind of tell me your thoughts on that record a little bit and kind of uh, what inspired that record. Well, Mute the Charm was actually written really quickly, uh, which is interesting usually with unwood sailor records like i'm always writing and recording and oh as i'm writing a record or getting the vision of a record i'll be like oh yeah like we started on this song two years ago this should go on that record so i'll kind of like pick Mm. things like that but for mute the charm it was all written at once really quickly and it's it felt more raw too um and so 
so we got those songs together and went in to record them, but I didn't like Youth of Charm was actually a hard, even though it was written quickly, it was a hard record to record because I kept running into problems sonically mm-hmm. that I didn't like. Mm. Like we had to retract the drums. Um, we had to do a couple different mixes. I think it was mastered like maybe 10 times or something. Wow. Poor Chris Colbert. Uh, <laughs> I put him through the ringer on that record. Um, but uh, it, but I love how it turned out. Yeah, sounds fantastic. And it, it feels like more of an Unwood Sailor rock record. Mm, yeah. Like it's real, it's guitar heavy. Um, and it also throws back a little bit, I think, to like the Faithful Anchor sometimes. Yeah, I can hear that. Like on the song Let Me Be Away. That feels like it could have been a song on The Faithful Anchor. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, there's some really odd ones jumped on in on that record, like Western Dime. Uh, when I wrote that baseline, I, I remember thinking, I don't know, dude, this is, might be kind of dumb. And I, I made a rule for myself. Anytime I think that something I write is dumb, you need to hold on to it for dear life and keep going with it. Yeah, because it's something instinct. It's instinctual. Like it, you're not trying. You just sat down and played this dumb little riff, and that's what I did with Western Dime. And then all of a sudden, you have like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath meets Unwood Sailor. Yeah, like this heavy, like grooving John Bonham song. Right. So, and then you, like the song Sugar Sand. I remember I sat down and I wrote that bass line, you know, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I remember thinking, first thing that popped in my mind was like Van Halen, Jump, Panama. Love that. Like I wanted that, I thought, I want to write like an anthem, like where the crowd is like chanting, shaking their fists, you know, like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, that's what I felt like Sugar Sand was. Um. Then you have a song like London Fog, which to me, like when I wrote that bass line, I was like, okay, this is like the Sundays, mm. blatant Sundays yeah. to me. And so that just formed into what I, when I grew up listening to the Sundays and uh, I, I just, I had an obsession with London and Manchester yeah. uh, growing up. Because a lot, most of the bands I was listening to came We're from, from there. that yeah. area. <laughs> totally. So I always had this vision of like foggy, rainy London. Yeah. And so I feel like London Fog, uh, I wanted to create this foggy, rainy song that reminded me of the Sundays in the 80s. So cool. That's so cool. Um, and then you have May We, which is very, I kind of, the whole like Manchester scene of Manchester in the early nineties snuck into that one. I kind of wanted to make this like stone roses meets Unwood sailor Love that kind of danceable, reflective, melodic. So I feel like, you know, with, it seems like Unwood sailor records these days, it's kind of like all the songs are like little, little stories inside the yeah, record or absolutely. little worlds. There's, there hasn't been a real, like, oh, this whole record is, like, 
one big story or one big it's kind of like these like little worlds inside an album that you can visit and go to i love that i love that they all like you said all these influences they all do have that not so much sound but that um homage if you will you know to to these artists that you love like you said the sundays or you know the stone roses It's, it's cool that you can take these songs and they're yours and they sound like unwed sailor but you can tell you know, where your heart was or at one point in your life, you know, I think that's really, really cool. Yeah. It's the, the influences are there and they're strong, but they're, they make subtle appearances. Yeah. Like, and that's what we, you know, we just did this tour with the chills, uh, the, uh, band from New Zealand, amazing band, uh, who we're all big fans of. And it was such an honor to go on tour with them, but they're, uh, their crowd is an older crowd Mm. who, you know, grew up in the eighties on the chills and bands like that. And they grew up on the Sundays in new order. And so they would all, all these chills fans would come back to the merch table and they'd be like, Oh my gosh. Like I was listening to you guys. And I, it's like, I, I felt what I felt like when I heard uh, the Sundays, or when I heard the Catherine wheel or new order, and it was su- such a huge compliment to me. Absolutely. People would say that to me because I ended up talking to him for 45 minutes at the merch table about these bands, you know? That's so cool. Um, and that meant a lot. It, and I feel like people hear him with Sailor and these subconscious, uh, these memories come back to them of these bands that they love so much without throwing it in their face. Absolutely. You know what I mean? No, I totally it's That's like cool. not like oh we're trying to sound like the Sundays or whatever. It's like it's just naturally there in these subtle ways, and then people are picking up on that yeah. and feeling those feelings again, which That's, is so great. That is. That's really. That's what a cool moment that must feel like. You know, when somebody does say something like that. That's really. Oh, it's amazing. Very very cool. Let me ask you this. Uh, I know this is probably hard because everyone always. Um, you know, equates uh, songs to being their babies. But what's what's if you had to pick one song in in your whole career, what what's the song? Oh, dude! <laughs> wow. Um, well, I would have to. I'll, I'll, let's narrow it down to a song that I I wrote. Sure. Or helped write. Sure. Um, well, I'd ha- I'd probably have to pick the two most probably influential ones are ones that I'm probably known for the best. Can I pick two? Sure, absolutely, man. All right. I'd have to say Sperm Ridden Burden, obviously. Sure. Um that because that's a song that I I found a deep, deep part of myself that I didn't know that was there. Yeah. And I was able to express it. And I, I remember any time I ever played Sperm Ridden Burden if I went up and I felt like shit mm-hmm. before that song, afterwards I felt great. <laughs> I bet. Because I got out Everything. every single bad thing in me. Probably probably stuff that was in me back from childhood I didn't even know about came out yeah. in that song. Well, actually, yes. Childhood things did come out in the lyrics. <laughs> but um, so I, that's probably one of the most meaningful songs for me. 
because it's so personal and it just has been therapy for me over the years. Absolutely. Being able to perform it. And probably the second one would be Ruby's Wishes. Uh, I feel like that bass line and that drum part mm-hmm. just came together so beautifully. It was one of the first Dumb with Sailor songs I'd ever written. Uh, and there's just a an innocence about it yeah. that I really treasure um, and a peacefulness about it. And, you know, Dave Bazan wrote that drum beat. Wow. And, and, and I remember we recorded the Firecracker EP, our first release, in the same house that It's Hard to Find a Friend was recorded. Uh-huh. On the on the same gear and everything. Wow. And I remember playing that bass line and looking at Dave in the corner on his drum kit, writing that drum beat and hearing it and seeing him play it and just thinking, oh, my God, like, this is perfect. Like, yeah, that's awesome. And just having that experience. And I think Ruby's Wishes, too, is a lot of people's favorite on what Sailor song. It, it yeah. seems like. One that when people hear that drum beat kick in live, they, they get it. super stoked. So, you know, out of, man, out of all of them, I'd say those are probably two of the most important ones to me. That's really cool. Well, those are both fantastic songs, and I see why you pick them both. And, I mean, that makes total sense. Sweet. So uh, what's next up for Unwed? Um, I know you said you're writing a new record, but uh, you got any tour plans? I know you, I just saw you posted you're doing somewhat uh, Arkansas and – uh, Oklahoma dates and any any other tours coming up? Yep. Uh, in May, uh, after that, we're doing a Midwest and East Coast tour. Oh, nice. Uh, and then we're also going to hit, uh, this year we'll hit the West Coast, and we're also come down your way. Oh, nice. Uh, Where at? Come down south. Uh, well, I don't know yet. I'm not sure when, but we – we, every year we'll be down there so well, let me know if i can help um i know i know i did a show for you down there before so yeah of course you know the florida south area is like one of our favorite places to tour so it's awesome i always love coming down there yeah it's cool and, to hang cool cool hang time so yeah doing that and and then again uh, i'm writing a new record right now so um which is almost Bass and drums and percussion and keys are almost all done. Wow. So we're almost ready for guitars. And then uh, we'll go mix it. Um, so Dude, yeah, you're that's, just crushing that's all it I'm out. Thinking about right now. So <laughs> that record. Do you I have a name for that record? I do, but I can't tell you. Okay, yet. well, then that's fine. You'll you have fine. to wait. You'll have to wait till 2024. Oh, fair enough. I can do that. That's exciting, though, man. I'm really happy for you. I, I, it's just really awesome um you know like i said earlier knowing you but just cool to hear these stories and these opportunities you've been given and and i'm so stoked for you i think it's so cool and and um i admire you you know like as a musician and um i just i'm really stoked that you get to still do what you love to do i think that's super cool man thank you and and i am too dude like i like i'm i'll be 50 next year and I, I've been doing this for well over half my life. And I, I'm just like, dude, like, how did I luck out, like, and find exactly what I love to do and what I feel like I was meant to do? That's so cool. Like, I found it, and I've been able to do it over all these years. And I, 
I feel so fortunate and so lucky, especially as I get older. Yeah. You know, it's like, man, I'm 50 and I'm still doing this. Like, and I'm, I'm, you know, more happy than I've ever been doing it. Yeah. Uh, and being able to put out records every year and write all these songs, like it's, um, yeah, dude, I'm, I'm so thankful and, and honored that I get to like live this life and do it. That's so cool. Jonathan, I really appreciate your time, man. It's been long overdue. I know we got to hang at Furnace, but hopefully we get to hang again soon. And, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on and hanging out and telling me some cool stories. Yeah, dude. Thanks for having me. Anytime, man. Awesome, dude. Cool. Well, till we meet again. All right. Hopefully All right, brother. Soon. Yes. Awesome, man. Hit me up. All right. Take care. All right, buddy. Bye. Thank you again for tuning in to this latest episode. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jonathan Ford and I, um, an amazing guy, super talented and incredible uh, storyteller as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Really looking forward to what we have coming up soon. So thank you and tell your friends.